Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, hello, Abundant Life Church, and welcome to the weekend experience. We are so glad that you're here. Uh, If you're new with us, we are thrilled that you're a part of this. We are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. My name is Jeremy, I'm the lead pastor here, and today is such a treat. Uh, First, I just wanna say happy Father's Day to all of our dads out there. Uh, We wanna celebrate you. I hope you are being celebrated today. Uh, What a great day for us to stop and pause and reflect on all that we have to be grateful for. And today is really a special day for me and for us because we get the chance to hear from my dad, uh, Cal Jernigan, who's going to be bringing the message for us today. Now here's what's fun. Uh, My dad has been a pastor literally my entire life, as long as I can remember. He's been at Central Christian Church in his 34th year. He's the lead pastor there. I had a chance not only to grow up in that church, I was able to serve on staff for 12 years. Uh, My dad and I have had so many amazing memories, uh, amazing experiences together. This guy has shaped me uh, in profound ways. And you get the benefit of having a little uh, taste of that today as he's gonna share a message with us. Now, rather than just telling you all the things I like about my dad, I thought because it's Father's Day, I wanna share a really fun moment with you uh, that my dad and I shared, where in the middle of him preaching a weekend service, I decided to go off script a little bit and have a little fun with them. And so I wanna show you this video of what I did to my dad, and then you get a chance to hear from him directly. Check this out.
This is what I was like. Also, this is not part of the script. <laughs> well, good morning, Abundant Life Church. I am so honored to be here. Happy Father's Day. What I wouldn't give to have a normal kid. <laughs> I'm your father, Luke. Hey, listen, uh, it is Father's Day, and again, I am so delighted to be here. The last time I had a privilege of speaking with you was two years ago, actually on Father's Day, and uh, what a thrill and an honor to be back. So I'm glad you're here, and it is a very, very special day. Now, we're going to talk about dads and two dads, but we're, this is for everybody, and you'll understand as we develop the message. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, there is, uh, on, on Father's Day, uh, a time which we just stop to reflect. I, I think most men, you know, you think about three generations in your life, if you're a man. You think about your dad. You got to think about your dad and the memories you have with your dad of just things that happened in the past and you celebrate those moments. Uh, the relationship with your dad matters. The relationship you have with yourself when you're, a, uh, when you're a man. I think on Father's Day, you think about who you are, who you've become and who you're becoming. And then if you are a father, you think about your kids and the memories you're making with them and who they're becoming. It's about three generations. It's, it's Father's Day. You know, and, and I think that for all of us, one of the deepest desires that we have is to have a good relationship with our dad. And not everybody has a good relationship, but we desire. And if you're a dad, you want to create the kind of relationship with your kids where they realize you really do care. You know, deep down inside, uh, men and women, uh, the relationship we have with our dad really matters. You know, we, we all have an idea of what we want in a dad. Uh, first and foremost, we want somebody who cares, who cares about his spouse, who cares about his kids. We, we want a, a person who is, who is a nurturer, who is a provider, who brings security. Somebody who teaches us because he's knowledgeable and he's wise. And, and, and when you think about these kind of things, you... You want out of your father somebody who to be an example, to show you how to live life. You, you deep down inside desire that your dad would be a leader and set the pace for you. So what I want to do today, and again, this will apply to everybody, but I want to show you an example from the Bible of a, of a father. And I want to use this as the catalyst to guide us into a conversation about what I think God might want us to be thinking about. So I want to introduce you to a, a guy that was a, he was a, a father. He, he, so he, he was a, a son, he was a father, he was a husband, and he was a leader. Now, he, when I say that he was a leader, this guy that I'm going to introduce you to, I'm exaggerating a little bit because he was really not much of a leader. He certainly was a, a father, he certainly was a son, he certainly was a husband, but he really wasn't much of a leader. He, uh, had, every, he had every possibility, every, he had the capacity to be a, a, a great leader, but truthfully, he was a leader in title only, and he, he was pretty pathetic when you come down to it. Um, he held a leadership position. Now, I want to point out that the story I'm going to tell you, it, it, it is not a, it's not a fable. It, it's, it's not a legend. It's not a myth. This is a, a, the story of a real guy. It's going to come straight off the pages of Scripture. And uh, there's, a, there's one particular verse that sums up his life that I think is one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. Because he is an example, but he proves to be a very bad example. But we can learn from him what we want to become and what we don't want to become. And, 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 and he's, he serves as a, a just somebody to stare at and go, wow. We'll get to the verse I just referenced in just a moment. But let me, let me give you a little bit of background of this guy so that you can understand the setting. 
This man's name that I'm going to introduce you to is a, a, his name is Jehoram. Jehoram, all right? Now, what you have to understand is Jehoram is a king, okay? He's, he's, he's a big deal. He's a king. <clears throat> now, if, if you remember the Old Testament, you might remember that after David lived, David was, you know, he was the, the uh, kind of the apex of all kings. He was like the highlight of all kings. And when he died, he handed the kingdom of Israel over to his son, uh, Solomon, and, and then Solomon handed it over. And then the, the kingdom began to split as it went through the generations. And, and so the kingdom that was united under David split into what was called the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And each of those kingdoms had kings. And in your Bible, it says first Kings, second Kings. It's all the stories of those kings. And in the book of Chronicles, that's what we've got. We've got the history of these kings. But the Southern Kingdom of Judah had a king named Jehoram, the guy we're gonna talk about. And uh, again, you gotta understand this guy, uh, to be the king of Judah is a huge deal. He's the king. But what you gotta understand to understand him is you gotta understand the generations in his life because every man is about his father and about his kids. So he had a father, his father's name was Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a phenomenal king. We still read and tell stories about King Jehoshaphat, a man full of faith, a man full of the power of God, a great, great man. His dad set a fantastic example for Jehoram. Now, Jehoram's son was a guy named Azariah. Azariah was not a good man. Azariah was a corrupt man. He aligned himself with corrupt people for corrupt ends. He, he, he didn't do much good at all. And, and, and I guess you could blame him for turning out the way he did because he didn't have a dad that set a good example. Jehoram does not set a good example. You'll see this in a moment. But Jehoram had a dad that did set a good example. And you start to understand how all of this matters in the passing on of generation to generation and why Father's Day becomes such an important day. But you got the setting now. Now let me show you the verse that, uh, this, the, the, to me, the saddest verse in the entire Bible, if not the saddest, it's one of the saddest. It says this, 2 Chronicles 21, 20. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. Nothing bad about that. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. What, what? Did you catch it? Did you catch what it said about him? Let's, let's back it up. Did you catch the line? He passed away to no one's regret. Church, stop and think about that line. He passed away to no one's regret? No one's regret? Not one person regretted his dying? No one? No regrets anywhere? He died and his wife wasn't sorry that he died? Nope. He died and his kids weren't sorry he died? Nope. His, his grandkids? Papa died. Yeah, who cares? Didn't he have a friend that cared? No, he had no one that cared. He passed away to no one's regret. Do you know anybody that you would put in that category? Wouldn't that be the saddest legacy of your life? That once you were gone, everyone was like, good riddance. Who cares? Uh, Nobody was sorry to see him go. Absolutely nobody. Are you kidding me? And then did you catch the second part of that line? He passed away to no one's regret, and they buried him, but not 
in the tombs of the kings. Now, you understand this is it, it, it exacerbates the problem. Nobody cared that he died, but he didn't even live a life worthy enough to be placed in the traditional place where kings are buried. This is the burial plot of kings. And he didn't deserve to go there. Now, I don't know how you're hearing this, but I have a big question that comes out of this. What does one do to live such an uncelebrated life and live such an and, and suffer such an inglorious death? What did this guy do? What did this guy not do? Actually, I think the answer to the question is really simple. How do you live such an inglorious life and or uncelebrated life and die such an inglorious death? I think you do what, what Jehoram did. And if you know the story, what he did was, all he did is think about himself. All he did is live for himself. All he did was all he ever wanted to do for himself. He, he was a son, he was a father, he was a husband, he was a friend. He didn't care about anybody uh, but himself. Every leadership opportunity that God gave him as king of Judah, he squandered because it was always and every time just about him. See, I wanna to explain to you why he died to no one's regret. Jehoram died to no one's regret because he lived to no one's benefit. And you just kinda of let that soak in for just a moment. He died to no one's regret because nobody benefited from his life. He gave his life away to nobody. And so when his life was over, nobody felt any loss. Now, I, I hope that as you're hearing this, you're thinking about your life, dad, and the possibilities of what you could give while you live. And that someday uh, in the future, if Jesus doesn't return, all of us won't be here, but the memory of your life will be here. And your kids will remember you in their generational you know, span of time. And let me tell you about my dad. So I think it's really, really important that we stop and we reflect on what's going on and how self-centered we can become. One of the stories that has forever marked me, um, <clears throat> it's a story of Samuel Johnson. Now, Samuel Johnson is you know, kind of his whole deal, but he had a biographer by the name of Boswell who followed and tracked his life. Boswell is very famous in his own right, but he was, he was famous for being a biographer of Samuel Johnson, but Boswell was recounting a memory in his life. And, and uh, I think I resonate with this because I love to fish and Boswell remembers a day that his dad took off work to take him fishing. So Boswell and his father spend a day in a boat and, and Boswell looks back on his life and he says, you know, the greatest day of my life was the day that I spent in that boat with my dad. And we just fished and we just talked. And, and I'm telling you, that day shaped my life. Uh, we talked about things we never had time to talk about and, and it made me think about things I never thought about and I set a direction for my life. And that day was so significant. It was the greatest day of my life. And someone years later had the, the thought, we should find out what Boswell's father thought about that day. Did he say, one of the greatest days of my life, because I got to spend quality time with my son and we talked about his future and his life and who he's going to become. So they went to Boswell's father's journal, looked up that day in his journal and they found one simple line, went fishing today with my son, a day wasted. You see, it's so 
hard to remember that every moment we have with other people, and particularly our kids, is a moment that makes memories that will be retained and valued in the future. And if we miss the moment, now, how do you live for somebody else's benefit? And this is really the question today. And this, again, is bigger than just men and their kids. It's moms and their kids. It's all of us and all of our relationships. <clears throat> how do you live to somebody else's benefit? Well, let's first talk about how we live to our own benefit. We call this self-centered living. It's incredibly prevalent. Um, living for yourself is something that I think just comes to all of us naturally. You know, when you're a kid, when your parents have you and, and they're, they're so excited because you take your first steps and you say your first words. And you know the first words your parents want you to say? You know how this goes, right? The first words that you, you want your kids to say, you know, is mama or, 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 or dada. You know, Jimmy Fallon wrote a book where the answer to every question in the book is dada. So his son would first say dada. You want them to understand that their life's a part of something bigger, that you're a part of a family and that you, you're one of us. But you know, so often for many of us, our first words are not mama or dada. It's a whole nother word. It's an insidious word. It's a sinister sounding word. It's a word that just flies off our tongues when you're a kid. It's so easy to say it's the word mine, mine. And it might not be your first word, but it's one of your favorite words when you're a kid. You usually say the word mine when you're grabbing hold of something and you say it in some kind of a demonic voice, mine. And usually you clutch it to your chest and you turn away as to keep it from anybody else. This is the root of how we live to no one else's benefit because instinctively we, we love to be about us and, and, and my life and my concerns and what's, what's about me. Uh, we would wish we would just outgrow this. And the truth is, is that you won't accidentally outgrow it. You will only outgrow your selfishness if you're intending to outgrow it, if you're strategically thinking about how I can get beyond myself. Because the natural outcome of this kind of thinking is that you become a very selfish person. And a very selfish person makes a horrible parent. Now, let me ask you a question. Of all the people on the planet, this is a serious question, of all the people on the planet, who is your most favorite selfish person? You gotta think about that for just a moment because you go, no, I got, I, got not, I got nobody. See, when you think about a selfish person who I'm sure you know some, but as you think about that, you're thinking, I don't like them. I don't like being around them. So I don't have a most favorite selfish person because I don't like being with, I, I avoid selfish people. But you know, there's an answer to the question. You do have a most favorite selfish person. I do too. You, you see, uh, there's somebody who's very selfish who you like a lot and you defend their behavior. You justify their self-centeredness. You explain it in terms that make sense to you and of course, who am I talking about? Who is your favorite, most favorite selfish person? It's, it's you. And, and for me, it's me. Gee, I'm the only selfish person I can stand to be around, and you're the only selfish person you can stand to be around. But it, it, it starts when we're young, and we, we live for ourselves, and it's mine, and it's all about me, and it's not about anybody else. I want to suggest that 
we come by this self-centered living uh, naturally. Uh, it's, it's understandable. We, we live in a world that surrounds us with all kinds of images of what self-centered living looks like. We, we, we're, we're taught that the only way you can make it is you gotta learn how to look out for yourself. You're number one. What you think and how you live matters most. And you're, you're to be comfortable. It's about you. And folks, I'm just telling you, we see this all around us. We see it in marriages. We see it in the workplace. We see it in relationships. We see it in neighborhoods. We see it in churches. It is the spirit that we grow up with that it's really about what I want. And I want what I want. And I have a right to have what I want. And we learn to live for ourselves and to nobody else's benefit. And again, this is something that comes naturally. We have to outgrow it. You know, one of the earliest games in my life that I learned uh, how to play a board game, and maybe for you it was as well, was the game of life. Remember the game of life? You spin that thing and you have the card and, and you, you pick up all kinds, you know, get married and have kids and you travel through the thing and you get money and all this thing. Um, can I read to you something that I discovered later in life? I, they didn't say this to me when I first learned how to play the game of life uh, as I was growing up. But later I went back and I read the rules. I read the game, you know, kind of this is how it works. You know what it says the object of the game of life is? That game hit the road for a roller coaster life of adventure, family, unexpected surprises, and pets. That sounds awesome. The player with the most money at the end of the game wins. Now, the first part of that sound is so cool, but is the object simply to end the game with the most money? That's the winner of the game of life? Acquire for yourself all you can get, and if you get the most. Now, in the rules, it says this. Now, follow this. Once everyone's retired, sell your houses, your action cards, your pets, and your kids, and collect your cash. Count your cash. If you have the most, you win. Wow, that's how life's to be played, huh? You don't win by having a great life. You don't win by having a great family. You don't win by having great relationships. You don't win by serving other people. You don't win by giving yourself away. You only win if you have the most money. Who uh, ever said that this game of life that we're all living is about acquiring cash? Because see, this is what causes us to live for ourselves and not to the benefit of others, is we're about acquiring for ourselves. But who told us this? When did we ever get this? Is that the best way to live life? You know, it's interesting, <clears throat> in The Week magazine, it's called The Week, in 2014, they had an article and I wanna just read to you what they said about the game of life. This is to me fascinating. The game of life wasn't always about money. The original version was about vice, virtue, and happiness. But when it was re-released in 1960, it was about cash. When Milton Bradley, the man, first created it, he saw the game as a tool to teach children about ethics. In his patent application, Bradley himself insisted that his game was intended to forcefully impress upon the minds of youth the great moral principles of virtue and vice. 
But in 1960, they began to figure out, can we rework this game? And so um, the 1960 version was about money and it was a smash. Uh, the, the, the article goes on to say this, and as the years passed by, it drew criticism, this philosophy of living to acquire cash. It is, after all, relentlessly uh, amoral and shamelessly cash conscious. In the Wall Street 1990s, follow this, a team of designers charged with updating it, we gotta come up with a better way to play the game of life. So in the 1990s, uh, gamers went to work to figure out a better way, but they gave up. They said this, whenever they tried to make the game less about having the most money, it made no sense. Now, again, I'm, I wanna pause. What causes us to become all about ourselves? What causes us to be so acquisition-oriented and, and, and think about what we have instead of what we give, what we can let go of and care about other people? You know, it's interesting, this, this thing on life, this game of life has been analyzed. This, a lot of thoughts have come out of this. One Harvard professor, a guy named Michael Norton, he said this, he said, you know why the game of life is all about cash? Is cash is a really easy way to think you, you, you're keeping score. You see, see, what Michael Norton said is this, look, I don't know how to, evaluate whether I'm a better father this year than I was last year. Uh, last year I was a 71, but this year I'm a 74. You, there's no way to measure that. Or, or last year as a spouse, I was a 67, but now I'm a 76. But you know, he said, when it comes to money, <clears throat> we can count and we can measure and we can score and we can believe that as the years go by, we're making progress, when in reality, all we might be doing is just learning how to become more and more and more about us. Hey, I have a bigger house than you, I beat you. It's out there, isn't it? Isn't there a better way to live? Isn't there a different way to think? Well, folks, there is. I wanna show you a different standard, and this applies again to men and women, mothers and fathers, all right, all of us, single people, Students, children, everyone. Scripture says uh, in, in Philippians, Paul said it this way. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Did you catch it? Uh, see, the standard that God wants us to live by is that it's not you first, it's, it's my spouse first, it's my kids first, it's my friends first, it's somebody else first. And, and, and I'm, their needs are more important than mine. It's very hard to live this way, isn't it? See, Jehoram never captured the concept that life might be bigger or more than just about him. And it's a hard reality to begin to understand that if you fail to do this, and you live all your life just for you, you too will die to no one's regret. So Jesus comes along and he says, I wanna teach you something. Now, Paul is referencing what he saw in Christ. He continues on in that passage in Philippians 2. 
But because see, at some point you have to imagine what would the world be like if people actually lived what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but consider others as more important than yourself. What would the world be like? And most of us go, I can't even begin to imagine. I, I've never met anyone who lives like that. I can't even conceive of the notion of what such selfless living would look like. And so we shut down and we go, it's just can't, can't do it, not even possible. Paul goes on to go, oh yeah, it's possible. Uh, because he then says, have this same attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. Let me, let, me, let me show you. Uh, in, in verses five to eight of Philippians two, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Now what, 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 what? You see, Jesus Christ emptied himself, is the word, he emptied himself of all that he had for the sake of all who needed what he had. It's hard to get our brain around. In other words, Jesus Christ lived such a selfless life that he was willing to leave the glory of heaven to descend all the way down to earth, and not just to earth to become a king on earth, but actually to become a servant on earth, and, and, and actually to the point of being a servant that he, he was killed, and he didn't just die any death, he died the most inglorious death you could die. He was crucified. And Paul says, if we could just learn to live like that, the world would be transformed. Now, I want to suggest to you this is really hard to do. I don't want to imply this is easy. This is incredibly challenging. In my church back home, we have a, a kind of the cornerstone verse of our church that we have just, this is the bedrock that we, we've landed on and said this is who we're going to be and this is what we want to be all about. It is one of the least, <laughs> it's not one of the saddest verses in the Bible, like the one we read about Jehoram, it is one of the least preached verses in the Bible. It's so incredibly unappealing. It's so incredibly un-American. It is so incredibly non-consumeristic. It's the verse Luke 9.23. And uh, Luke 9.23 is in, in, in incredibly challenging. Let, let, me, let me read it to you and then I'll explain how, how this works, all right? Then he said to them all, then he, Jesus, said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's 923 and 24. Uh, yeah, not interested. That sounds like that is not the way to live life. But Jesus made it really clear. Look, if you want to be one of mine, if you want to sign up and get in my you know, my school of discipleship, if you want to be one of my followers, then what you have to do is you, you have to humble yourself. You have to deny yourself. It can't be about you. You're not first. You, you, you have to humble yourself and, and then you have to die to yourself. You got to die to yourself. And, and then you got to follow me. So 
Humble yourself, die to yourself, and follow me. Can, can I just explain how incredibly hard this is? And yet, because we're never challenged to do it, we don't come close to it. But Scripture challenges, do this. Humble yourself. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Others are more important. Die, die to yourself. You know, the problem with dying to yourself, like Romans 12 talks about being a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice means I have to die to myself every single day. I crawl up on the altar and I, I, I try today to die to myself. But tomorrow I'm going to be alive again and I got to crawl back up on that altar and I got to die to myself day after day. And I'm telling you folks, it's the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. And, and then he says, follow me, go wherever I'm going to go. In, in our church back home, our logo is a cross on its side. And um, it's always funny because people you know, ask, did your cross fall over? Our cross is it's on its side. And we don't, I, I always try to explain to people, there's two crosses that create obstacles for all of us. Let, let me just real quickly explain. There's the upright cross, and we often think of the, up, you know, we're, we're Protestants, so the cross is empty. We're not, you know, we don't have Jesus on the cross because the work is done. And so we took Jesus off the cross. So we have an empty cross and you often, you know, it's just standing straight up, which is fine. Except we always try to explain to people that that cross, <clears throat> that's history. That's what happened for you 2,000 years ago. Now it's an obstacle, it's in the way. And, and so we always try to explain to people what you gotta do with the cross of Christ is you gotta get over it. What do you mean get over it? You gotta get over it. Well, I don't understand. You, you, yeah, this thing Jesus did for you, get over it. What, what do you mean? Yeah, you're never gonna deserve it. You're never gonna earn it. It's never gonna make sense. It's never gonna be justifiable. You gotta humble yourself and get over it, that Jesus did this for you. It was his gift for you. You just gotta get over it. And, and you gotta literally just receive what God did for you and, and bury your pride and realize that you're, sins were paid for by him on his cross. And that's that upright cross. Get, got, got to get over it. But then we go on to explain that we're not done because Luke 9.23 said something very clear. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. What does that mean? That means Jesus died for us and we're all good with that but then Jesus calls us to die for him. What does that mean? It means you gotta get over it, and then you gotta get under it. You see, a cross on its side is how you carry a cross. And Jesus says, I want you to carry your cross every single day. What does that mean? It, it, it means you're lifting up something other than your own weight, and you're carrying something for somebody else. You're, you're you're dying. Now you're following and it's all about this incredible glorious resurrection that's coming for all of us. But you gotta get over the cross and then you gotta get under it. You know, it's fascinating. So we started this message, we we're talking about, you know, people who've, you know, the generations of a man's life. You know, all of us have had our lives impacted deeply by people and I don't know who it is for you. I, I, I would hope for most of us, we'd say it's our mom and our dad. Our mom and our dad, man, made such an incredible impression. Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a teacher. Who was it that shaped your life? Who was it that just 
the minute they entered your life, you couldn't be the same person. Who was that for you? Do you understand what Jesus did? Was he set an example for you and me on how to live our life. You take what you have that's glorious and you empty yourself of it for the sake of others, you benefit others. What did he learn that? Folks, don't miss it. Where did Jesus learn how to live like that? He learned it from his father, who set the example on what it's like to give and give and give and put everyone else ahead of yourself. Because I'm telling you folks, if God just cared about himself, we would all be annihilated. But he didn't. And, And his way of living is give and give and give and benefit others. Jesus Christ, his son, just goes, I'm just living like my dad. Now, I wanna close this message and uh, I wanna tell you a story. And for some of you, this happened long enough ago that you'll just go, they're just names. But the principle behind the story hopefully will mean something to you. Back in the 1960s, there was a man who founded a ministry his name was Dawson Trotman. He founded the ministry called the Navigators, a phenomenal ministry that had to do with the military and uh, about discipleship and raising people up to follow Jesus. And Dawson Trotman was an awesome leader. And this ministry was just an incredible, incredible story. But for 23 years, he headed up the Navigators, Dawson Trotman did. And uh, one day uh, on a lake in New, New York State, Shroon Lake, he was out with some of his friends and they were out on the lake water skiing. And uh, as they were talking in the boat, uh, one of the women in the boat uh, described the fact that she had, she explained she had never learned how to swim. She can't ski because she doesn't know how to swim. And they were surprised. She said, you never, you know, never learn, never learn. I don't know how to swim. Well, it ends up happening in a fluke accident is this boat hits a wake and both Dawson and this woman get thrown out of the boat and she immediately goes into a panic. Dawson swims over to her, puts all of his energy into holding her head above water while the boat circles around and comes back to pick her up. And uh, they struggle to get her back into the boat and she's you know, exhausted and all of this. And so they get her in the boat while Dawson's just in the water. And then when they finally get her s- s- settled and situated, they go down to get Dawson and he had died, fully exhausted trying to keep her alive. At his funeral, no less than Billy Graham presided and he said a line that uh, has just become an incredibly memorable line. He said um, of Dawson, he died just as he lived, lifting other people up. You see, the, the secret to living to someone's regret is to live to someone's benefit. And, and when you're willing to live to someone's benefit, you're willing to die to someone's benefit. You, you become a whole lot like Jesus. Because see, the, 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 the truth is, is that if, if I live to no one else's benefit, I will die to no one's regret. And so will you. So the question is this, fathers, this is your time, this is your moment, this is your life, this is your opportunity. 
to not be like Jehoram, but rather to be like Jesus. Die to yourself so you will live on in the memory and the legacy of who you were and what your life was all about. By the way, if you don't have kids, find some. Find some. They desperately need someone like you who would live and die for them. It's the time. It's the moment. Let's pray. So God, thank you for the example of Jesus. I know where he learned. He learned this from you. He learned it from his father. God, all of us who are fathers are passing on things to our kids. They're watching. We can be a great example. We can be a bad example. We can, we can lift your name up or we can be tearing your name down. It's not limited to dads. It's all of us. God, help us to understand that we have but this one life on this planet to live. And it will come to an end. And we will be remembered. Our name will come up and something will be associated with that memory. God, I pray that people would remember us as people who live for them, not for us. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.